Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Fun counter guy, thanks for stopping by. The music you just heard was the first notes I ever heard from a band called Adam Again. The lead singer, Gene Eugene Andresco, who also was a producer, engineer, musician, and record company exec, died 22 years ago this month. My guest back by the woodpile on this episode is a filmmaker by the name of Todd Zeller. Zeller was initially a fan of Adam Again, but was fortunate enough to get to work with the band in those days leading up to Gene's unexpected passing. Zeller is now gearing up to finish a film project on Gene Eugene and Adam Again called This Band Is Our House. We will talk with Zeller about how his own walk of artistry and faith intersected with Adam Again's and led to the life and career he has today. If you don't mind talking about how did you first become exposed to what we call CCM or contemporary Christian music or, you know, basically uh, Christian music that wasn't being sung in the church for people who may be outside this world and don't understand that distinction? So I grew up in Redding, California. Thankfully, I had parents who had good taste in music. Uh, They listened to things like Linda Ronstadt, The Eagles, Neil Diamond, you know, those were good and I liked those, but I was really particularly drawn to music like uh, Simon and Garfunkel, The Mamas and the Papas, Blood, Sweat and Tears. You know, as a kid, I just remember have really vivid memories of on the hot summer days, you know, about sixth, seventh grade, I would, they, they trusted me. And once they taught me how to put a, you know, put some vinyl on the, on the turntable, I would lay down next to the big console stereo. We had this air conditioner that would blow on these hot summer days. I'd crank it up as loud as they'd let me. And, um, you know, I'd just get lost in songs by Simon and Garfunkel, the lyrics, the story. And so I was really drawn to that kind of music more in those days when I was first hearing music. So as a young Christian uh, teenager, growing up in a you know pretty conservative, conservative Christian church, my mom and dad would take us to shows as kids by like the second chapter of Acts or Dallas and Holman Praise. Yes, I'll rise again. Death can't keep me in the ground. And that wasn't my speed, you know. I, I could appreciate the sincerity and the artistry and such but it wasn't really my my cup of tea it wasn't until i was probably in about i think it was seventh or eighth grade myself i found myself always thumbing through anything that would come into the mail that had to do with music and like many you know music fans we got our start somewhere mine was in um the columbia record club columbia music house i think it was called and so i did the 10 records for a penny or whatever it was right <laughs> yeah. and i was, this was my first foray into vinyl you know and this was in the era of eight tracks and vinyl those were the two two uh, formats the first record that i remember wanting and desiring to have in my hand as a as a vinyl as a record was 
Saga. Do you remember that band Saga? And they had a hit called On the Loose. You know, and I was kind of getting into that type of music. From that batch of 10 was Queen's Greatest Hits. I was knee deep into that type of music as a youngster. One of the things that I was going to mention, do you remember Bob Larson and the Peters Brothers? I think it was called Why Knock Rock. They had a book. And these guys were coming to my church regularly. Or not regularly, a couple times I got to see them. You know, and they were railing against the darkness of, of heathen, secular rock and such. Right. And, uh, you know, this was like, I felt this was a personal attack on my music that I was really into because I didn't didn't know there was an alternative yet. I just really didn't truly know other than the gospel acts of the day. I just know that I was sitting in church feeling convicted as they're spinning records backwards. And Mm -hmm. I'm hearing these what sound like satanic messages. So what did I do? I went straight home, put my queen record on, spun, uh, you know, manually spun it backwards so I could hear another one bites the dust. And supposedly they were saying decide to smoke marijuana. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah. So what did I do? I didn't burn any records. I just got rid of all my secular discs and whatnot. And then I said, well, there's got to be more than this since that's what these guys are. You know, these guys are making me feel convicted, but I still didn't really have my, like I said, my, my, my legs underneath me yet. So in 1983 or so, living in Reading, a servant came through town, uh, and I think it was the tour for Caught in the Act of Loving You, or Caught in the Act was the name of the album, I think. If I remember right, this was like a a free show or something to that effect. They were giving the records away. And I just remember going to that show with uh, maybe my family, maybe some friends. I don't remember exactly. And I was really impressed. I was impressed with the stage show. I was impressed with their conviction, their musicianship. Uh, You know, there's pyrotechnics. And I'm thinking, okay, so if this if there's something like this out there that's made by Christians, that's uh, uh, performed by Christians and I can be moved by it in some way, which I certainly was, then there must be more out there for me. So that's when I started my search, I would say, after that show. Pretty quickly, I I saw Res Band play, got into their music. Uh, Oftentimes, you know, there might be kids in the youth group that were also finding records, and we'd sit at each other's houses and spend some records, you know. And Larry Norman, uh, Randy Stonehill, Mark Hurd, and then, you know, my age category... You know, once I discovered Steve Taylor, I want to be a clone. I mean, there was no going back. I needed something, you know, every time a new artist would come out with something a little deeper, a little more just artful and ensuring their faith from a new perspective, you know, because that's what all I, I was all about. Their language it was new to me, but Christianese got through to me. Now I can speak it fluently. I want to be a clone. Be a clone and kiss conviction You know, I, I knew my faith. I understood my faith to some degree. But I certainly couldn't express it well. And so I was hearing these artists express something new and refreshing to me, you know, that uh, that really moved me. And I would say 
you know, Christian music along with the Bible has, you know, really have, has shaped me in terms of my, my personal convictions and, and who I am, you know, at 55 today. So there's this legendary church that was a mecca or a, a big magnet for a lot of these alternative bands, uh, new wave Christian bands we were talking about. And this has come up in many episodes before, uh, but it was called The Warehouse. Uh, and there was a lot of uh, groups that we, me and you both loved. Uh, talk about how you started to go to see these bands play, I assume, and maybe you attended the church. And what was that whole experience? Growing up in Redding, California, it was relatively close, within a couple of hours' drive to, you know, both Sacramento and the Bay Area, San Francisco area, where a lot of bigger shows would come. And, uh, you know, I, I think I probably read in some of the, the, you know, the magazines, maybe it was Harvest Rock Syndicate, True Tunes, I don't remember which, but uh, I followed all of them. those writers and critics and such. I really appreciated the bands like The Choir and... 77s adam again and daniel amos kind of my top four like lots of us in the in our circles um i was able to you know start heading down to to the warehouse uh on a fairly regular basis and this is where i was you know trying to evangelize all my friends through music you know i'm playing these records you know back at home and they're saying these guys are great you know these these bands are phenomenal let's go see them live and so yeah i did get to see um 77's play at the warehouse a couple different times during the, the classic 88 era. And then uh, later I got to see them a lot more times because I lived in Sacramento for a little while. And then uh, bands like Charlie Peacock, you know, uh, Vector, Loved all of that and got to see quite a few different bands down there. I did stay a couple different times. We'd stay overnight. I'd take a car, you know, we'd take a carload of friends. There'd be maybe six of us and we'd grab a hotel for the night. I'd drag them into church the next morning. And yeah, it was a, a phenomenal experience and groundbreaking, you know, I mean, just much like the Southern California movement, much like Calvary Chapel. I was following that Southern California movement for sure, but I was also seeing it closer to my home where I grew up in, Sa in Sacramento. And they were doing something really groundbreaking and pioneering, you know, in those days at, at the warehouse. Did you find when you shared this music with your friends that maybe weren't committed Christians, did it affect them at all? Yeah, you know, um, I'm not a musician by trade or anything. I dabble and have dabbled. But all the guys I hung out with from about sixth, seventh, eighth grade on forward, and I'm still friends with today, uh, were musicians. You know, they were all you know, starting garage bands. And so we were always as friends discussing music and, you know, the politics of the day and religion. And they knew that that was near and dear to me. And since a lot of these same guys, you know, I'd drag them to some youth group function on a Thursday night, Sunday or what have you, Sunday night. That's where I'd like springboard right into by the way coming up two weeks from now here's a flyer you know for 77 show down down in sacramento and i think what they were impressed with and it did impress upon them uh, i can think of one guy who latched onto the music and he did become a, a baptized believer if you will mm -hmm. and i think that music was a big part of it because he was a keyboard player and he specifically went and really was impressed with uh charlie peacock band you know back in the day and 
Eventually, uh, you would become a filmmaker, and you would get to work with a lot of these guys that you had looked up to when you were younger. But also that next generation, I would say like the late 80s, early 90s. And when I say that, I, I always think of uh, maybe Adam again and uh, Michael Knott. I know those guys were around in the 80s. I, it just, they didn't get on my radar until the, the early 90s or late 80s. But So talk about how, first of all, how you end up getting into filmmaking and also how you end up making films for a lot of these guys. Starting back in the days of Reading, I was you know probably... 2021 ish thereabouts i had a small concert promotions company with my brother jeff and another good friend and we were primarily bringing more independent local area bands to to the church and we had we had made a commitment for a year with the church uh to bring a new act every friday night and so we were patterning somewhat to reference earlier the, you know it was a, a very small tiny version of the warehouse we loved what they were doing but of course they were much larger and um one of the bigger acts that we brought was larry norman you know we picked him up from the airport we got him all set up with his hotel and such and that was my very first um behind the scenes look at you know the rock star lifestyle if you will of of christian artists that i really looked up to and i really admired and really influenced me um and it was somewhat negative, to be honest with you. You know, it was. I, I, yeah, I do want to get to that eventually, but yeah. Yeah. So fast forward to about 1999, I'm living in Eugene, Oregon, and another good friend of mine, uh, Jason Kennedy, and some guys had a little downtown Eugene outreach uh, coffee house slash church, and uh, we said, "Well, let's get some other people in, so let's start doing shows here locally." So we started bringing acts like um, Five O'clock People. Cadet, um, Stairwell, Richard Swift, um, Champion Bird Watchers, and Michael Knott and Gene Eugene to town. That was 1999. I've always rooted for the underdog and related to underdogs because I kind of see myself that way. As an introvert, I've always been a bit of a wallflower. So in the 80s and 90s, as you recall, the, the music videos in CCM were just terrible. They were just sad and embarrassing <laughs> oh, yeah. to the whole, as a whole. I was starting to get inspired when things like uh, coming out of the Southern California community, you know, the new wave punk and alternative scene uh, that was such incredible music, yet so, so underserved with music videos until I saw the choir's wide-eyed wonder on VHS. Mm -hmm. Never mind the ground. 
1989 and some of the work that Steve Taylor and Ben Pearson were putting out, both in front of the camera and behind the camera. So after some time uh, trying to figure out which direction we were going to go career-wise, I was relatively newly married and we took a couple year uh, jaunt over to Nashville. We lived there for a little while and we were hoping to break into the you know, we, we naively thought we could go change the world with our, our lack of skill, but lots of vision and heart and passion, you know. Well, yeah. And, um, you know, we said, where would we want to move? You know, where would we want to live? And we had no children at the time. So we chose Nashville. And we knew a few people that had already kind of ventured out from the Pacific Northwest to Nashville. And so we had some contacts. That was a five-year plan. And we did meet a few people in the industry. And we did get to shoot some independent music videos. Um, that's where I first bought and picked up my first Super 8 film camera and I, you know, shot some some different things and we met some really great people and some great collaborators and we're still friends today. However, we unexpectedly started having children a little sooner than we planned. And so my then wife, um, Lori, she really wanted to move back to Oregon. So we cut that trip a little sadly short and, you know, part of my heart's still there because I, I really thought we were just starting, you know, we were making a lot of inroads. I'd actually gotten to know Dave Palmer and uh, Tony Shore a little bit, and just some of the people that I was interested in getting to know what they did uh, for the music that I love and the artists that I love, because ultimately I always saw myself as the, the indie filmmaker for the indie artists that I loved and influenced me. And I really wanted to try to get back in some way because I didn't see that happening in the industry. After moving back, that was when God really started to open up doors in the strangest of ways. Um, I remember reading an article in uh, one of our favorite magazines, True Tunes, or True Tunes News, I think it was back in the day. And I remember reading an interview with Adam again, reading that Greg Lawless, the guitar player, had moved from Southern California up to Oregon. Not only to Oregon, but to Cottage Grove, Oregon, which I live in Eugene, Cottage Grove is about 30 miles south of me. And at the time, I wasn't fully into uh, filmmaking and, and video production yet. I wanted to be, but we weren't there yet. And so I was doing my first trade, which was sign painting. So I had a little sign business. And I used to go around. I don't know if it happens much back there in the South, but in California and even in Oregon, a big thing is it's called uh, neon window splashes or fluorescent window splashes. So at car dealerships, you see a big fluorescent you know, window sign. Well, that was my thing. I had this portable sign business going and I'm out there painting at Les Schwab tires in Cottage Grove, Oregon. I'm standing there in the rain, you know, kind of rainy day. And I see this guy delivering mail, the mailman, he walks in and he's got this mailbag over his shoulder, big full beard. And, and I'm like, man, wouldn't that be cool if I, if that guy knows Greg Lawless about him again, I should ask him. <laughs> so he walks out and I go, Hey man, I got this, I got a crazy question for you. I go, do you know, of a guy that maybe works for the post office down here. Cause I, I think I read that he worked for the post office by the name of Greg Lawless. Uh, and he's like, well, yeah, dude, I'm Greg Lawless. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's so funny because, you know, we see the liner notes and I was one of those music fiends who, uh, you know, read every detail about who played on what and who wrote what lyric played, what instrument and such. And, you know, you see photos of some of your heroes, but you know, you see them in person, you just don't, doesn't register. Right. Uh -huh. And it didn't register until he said that. And I said, so 
dude, you're, you're in one of my favorite bands, Adam McKinn. I go, it's such an honor, you know? And he's like, you know, my band, you know, and he was so surprised that some, some stranger out of, you know, cottage in Cottage Grove, Oregon, uh, recognized him or, you know, asked. And so thought to ask. And so anyways, that was 23 years ago or whatever. And we uh, have been friends ever since. And so really Greg was the catalyst. He opened up the door for me to get to know Gene, to get to know Mike Knott. So 1997, we were still not ready to like full on launch our video production business. We were gathering steam. We were writing business plans. We were trying to get some funding for a small business loan. And we were also having children at the time. So there were, you know, there's babies everywhere, it seemed. I have four <laughs> kids. So love my children, each one of them a great blessing. But, you know, things were real hectic as, as new parents and such. So we're trying to transition out of sign painting and into video production. It was 1997. And out of nowhere, Greg says, Hey, Todd, he calls me up. He's like, Hey, man, do you uh, think you could throw some cameras together? Uh, Gene's going to be in town and uh, John Knox. And we're going to rehearse in Cottage Grove for Cornerstone Performance 1997. And I said, you know, gosh, I'd love to. You know, this sounds phenomenal. I'd love to meet Gene and everything and um, and John. And um, sadly, Michelle wasn't going to be there because it just couldn't couldn't happen that way. So I ended up, because I literally did not even own a, a semi-pro video camera at, time, at the time, I call up my friend Steve Mitchell from Nashville who was a full-time videographer and we'd already worked on some independent independent stuff there in Tennessee. And he and his wife flew out and they were the ones who helped us gather all the footage. I gathered super eight film and we shot, you know, for four days straight, roughly um, down in Cottage Grove. That was my introduction into the music that I absolutely loved that I grew up on and really respected and admired. Um, and thank you, you know, much kudos and thanks. Greg always has my gratitude, you know, because he, he really made that happen. Not only did we get to shoot and hang out there for a while while the band rehearsed, um, gathered some really great footage, got to know Gene a little bit. Um, then from there, I shared... After that is when Gene and I started emailing a lot as friends, you know, getting to know what my vision was, because I basically said, look, we've got an opportunity to create a very independent, low budget uh, documentary about the band Adam McKinn. And we didn't know where the story was going to go at that point in time. It was just a matter of we're going to capture this. We're going to archive this, you know, for, for who knows what purpose at the time. And so we did on very little budget and, um, that was when we, once Gene and I started talking and we shared a, a sample of some of the footage that we gathered, especially the Super 8. He really liked the Super 8. He's like, oh, that's dirty. I love that. Dirty, grainy. I love that look, you know, very inner city kind of a thing. And um, so he was really kind of helping steer the ship on what might happen with the idea that, okay, next phase is... We'll get Greg down, we'll get John in, and we'll start writing new songs for the next Adam McGinn record at the Green Room. That ended up happening, and we you know, we got invited to the Green Room, and that was sort of the foundation. That's when I first got to meet Knott in person, and um, always a big fan of his music for a long time, uh, dating back to the Lifesavers. The thing that was important to me 
I always saw the Southern California bands as kind of a community, a tight knit community. And I really think that was ultimately what it was. You know, you'd see you'd see Dan Michaels playing and Adam again and in the choir. You'd see Gene singing or Michelle singing some background vocals, Gene singing or playing. Uh, Greg played on some, you know, I think the Wide Eyed Wonder album, uh, uh, Spin You Around, if I'm not mistaken. And so I saw this as a, you know, what I always imagined the green room to be this little hub of, you know, eccentric characters moving in and out and recording great music. That's exactly what it was. First day in there, we've got my one year old son. I think he was, yeah, he was about a year old, Evan, with us in tow. And I've got my wife, Lori, there. I kid you not, first morning. Well, afternoon. They are rock stars after all, you know. Right. They, where I'm ready to go, let's start shooting at 9 a.m. They're like, <laughs> how about 12 or yeah. 1? And um, <laughs> I'm out there shooting some B-roll of the green room, and first car pulls up. Guy dressed in black. Of course, it's Mike Knott strutting across the front lawn. You know, he, he nods, says hello. I shoot a little bit. Not 15 minutes later, Terry Taylor's walking in. Ojo Taylor. <laughs> Wayne Everett comes in. And so so it was very much like I imagined. And, you know, everybody was incredibly, you know, gracious and generous with their time. And, you know, they were there to write music and they were there to get things done. And Gene had stuff happening constantly. Phones were constantly going off. It was a little chaotic, to be honest with you. You know, I was thinking, ah, we're going to go in. They're going to start writing immediately. That wasn't the case. You know, they, they really liked to be fluid and allow things to happen so that was the, the the foundation and the catalyst for some continued small indie projects down the road um as the years went on and you know the, the reality is the window of time from the time i met gene the first time to his passing was really only a handful of years you know and so what started out as a very independent loose vision of a film about Adam again, and it was going to be the rehearsal for Cornerstone 97, the, the Cornerstone performance, bits and pieces, and that I imagined in the studio writing the new record, and then we continued to, to do interviews from there. Well, of course, the, you know, the unthinkable happened, and Gene passed unexpectedly, and then that changed the whole direction of our, of our documentary, and, you know, the narrative had to change you know, looking back, there's a lot of things we would have done differently had we not been so green and, you know, experienced. I'm grateful for that time anyways. And... There always is a deadline and that's fine. I follow the tradition. The audience is You know, it's like, if you know Gene, it was instant, instant credibility with the other guys. And so, not, he had us film a couple of his solo acoustic shows, the one we heard, had here in, in Eugene, with Gene and Greg. And then also up at uh, Tom Fest, which was up in Washington. I have a couple of those shows and, um, you know, got to know, got to know those guys through that. Yeah. Did you tell me in a different previous conversation that maybe you worked at a radio station or had some dealings with brainstorm artists international back in the back in the day or yeah you know i was trying to remember why it was that i remember having several phone call conversations with ricky michelle specifically i, I don't know if she was over 
the promotions part of BAI, but I worked at a radio station, that's true, WNAZ in Nashville, but they played uh, things like Larnell Harris and Steve Green and real chill, I guess we'll say, uh, stuff like that. And I think Brainstorm sent the radio station a package of some of the releases, and so maybe I asked one of the managers, could I call them? And basically tell them, hey, thanks, I'm a big fan, but they're never going to play your stuff. That's my best guess. But I do remember specifically during the Rodney King riots, calling Ricky to see if she was okay or if whatever apocalypse was happening was heading their way. So yeah, I'll just say she did survive. And I guess I miss working at that radio station because at the very least, it allowed me to have nice conversations with Ricky Michelle as I let her down gently about how Adam again would not be played next to Sandy Patty. In the forthcoming documentary, This Band is Our House, the story of Adam again. I look at it this way. I didn't know Gene really. I just knew him for a window of time and uh, I admired him from afar. You know, I'm really an outsider in the big scheme of things. I think Gene accomplished a lot in his short life. You know, I think he really touched a lot of people from the various songs he wrote. Not just, you know, he's an incredible songwriter, gifted lyricist and vocalist. I mean, that voice just, there's just, it's unmistakable in my mind. But I think he really lived pretty selflessly because what I saw both following the music as a fan and then getting to know the band a little bit through my experience with them, it was simply that much like all of us creatives, sometimes we're helping everybody else produce their art. Sometimes we're collaborating and sometimes we're, you know, Gene was not only did he co-own the green room, the fabulous green room in Huntington beach, you know, he was working with Tooth & Nail Records, he was producing, he was engineering, he was co-writing. The guy was constantly busy. They had the label. I guess it started off broken and eventually would become uh, Brainstorm International. B-A-I, uh, Brainstorm Artists International. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, him and Ojo. There's a third party, Barry. I forgot his last name. He had a lot of irons in the fire. And, you know, I think a lot of people you know, no, he struggled with uh, his health and I don't think he ate well, you know, it wasn't a healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I think the demands of studio life and, you know, so much, so many demands placed on the guy, um, I think took its toll much sooner than it should have. You know, the art of, of Adam again, this, you know, we only got five al albums out of Adam again in that window of time where there could have been so many more, given the fact that he, he owned a studio, you know. Right. Um, but because he was giving so much of his time and energy and effort to other artists, I think, to help them pursue their art and accomplish that, I think, you know, his own art was sacrificed. Um, I always got a sense that, like, the label and other projects of recording people, that was his main thing. And on occasion, someone was like, enough people would pressure him to hey, you need to make another Adam again record. Like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Absolutely. No, you're, you're right about that. I think you're totally right. And, and you know, the following of Adam again, though it's small, it's a small 
following of people it's they're very devoted because it was such unique uh, such a unique sound no one in christian music christian alternative music was doing that nothing like that you know i mean they were off the charts especially once they got their sound by by uh 10 songs you know that i think by that album they really started to find their their vibe and their sound started to make a documentary uh, a little bit ago, uh, and by a little bit, I don't mean last week, but like 20 years ago, uh, and it's something that's still ongoing. And I've seen a, a rough cut that you showed me where you've interviewed multiple artists that Gene produced or worked with. Uh, what was your overall uh, impression of Gene, especially coming from these other artists who he helped, you know, find their musical vision. One, he's just a beloved guy. I mean, he, I think everybody saw both the best and worst in him. Clearly, some of these artists who were, you know, locked up in a studio with the guy while he was engineering, they saw different sides of Gene. My takeaways were that he was a very giving, generous with his time. You know, I know for a fact, you know, Michael not recorded so many different albums and band iterations at the green room. And I know Gene was not charging him full price because Mike couldn't afford to pay that. You know, that's the, the harsh reality of a lot of these indie artists. They didn't have big budgets. There were no big, you know, record deals that were, they were uh, making these things happen aside from say Aunt Betty's. We know that that the Aunt Betty's uh, legend of, you know, a budget there. But that being said, I really think Gene went out of his way because he had both the musicianship, I mean, he was a multi-instrumentalist, on a whim. I know of specific bands, um, one of the last projects he worked on before his death, a band called Paloma, with Jesse Sprinkle on drums, and that was recorded back in the day, live in studio. The artist said, Gene, can you duet with me on this one song? It's called Come Back to Me. And Gene said, yeah, let me learn it, you know, boom. And he, and he went for it. It's worth the money spent It's worth the blood and the guts that I paid for you From my understanding, Gene was like that. He would give in the moment, you know, my personal interactions. He numerous times said, can you grab the camera? I'll grab an acoustic guitar and we'll shoot me lip syncing to river on fire out in the woods. You want to just do it? Huh. And me being the, you know, ding dong that I was, I didn't <laughs> say, yeah, let's do it. I said, well, we got a plan. We got to do this. We huh. got to get lighting. We got to blah, blah, blah. When I should have just said, absolutely, let's do it. I think he was one of those gentle, gentle souls who both guided the artist with humor, skill, accuracy, musicianship, and pushed and pushed the artist. I mean, I know that, takeaways from a lot of different artists that we interviewed for the film it was always that they wanted to hear gene's approval because they really really deeply respected and admired his expertise in the field i don't think anyone took for granted that they were working with gene eugene andrusco of you know the, the green room look at his body of work with the different bands it's 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 huge you know it's gargantuan compared to so many different producers that are out there today in that field yeah, 
I'm on the principalities, man. I line them off from here. This Cincinnati and Eureka, Topeka, and also Costa Rica. Put this in your FPE, aka our speaker. I did a whole episode a few years ago with John Thompson of True Tunes. I think I had mentioned there that in my mind, BAI had the greatest hip hop roster of all time. Now, I know Absolutely. a lot of hip hop fans would think, oh, come on, you know, what about Def Jam or whatever? And I, I love Def Jam as well, but there was something magical. And I, I assume that Gene was at the center of it because it was his label and they were recording at the green room. But you had SFC, you know, Freedom of Soul, Dynamic Twins. Idol King and a few others in that orbit. And do you have any idea how that came about? Yeah, I, I don't know the exacts of how those particular projects came to be. I know that if you look at the music that was influencing Gene and Adam again and the players in that band, there were a lot of different influences, I think, you know, rhythmically. Uh, and I think that. From what I understand, and you know, this is a conversation with maybe for for uh, Ojo Taylor or Barry Hill is the other individual who was involved in uh, BAI. I just know that Gene was very capable of switching gears from genre to genre. You know, so if a hip hop artist came in, then he's gonna put in his all because he was a not just a musician; he was a music music fan. You know, that guy. I remember going first time I went to the green room. There's a big stack of records leaning against the wall oddly near the kitchen inside the kitchen just inside the door it's like you're sitting at the kitchen table but there's a nice big crate of records to thumb through you know there's everything from stevie wonder in there to like neil diamond you know and and just oddball mix but gene clearly you know had was capable of so many different styles and bringing a lot to the table you know he knew how he would sequence and drum programming all of that you know he could we we would need to fact check this statement but my understanding is you know, Gene learned everything in the studio, hands-on, rather than no degree in, in, in broadcast engineering or whatever, right. you know, recording engineer. Yeah. I think he really just was gifted, and he had an eye and an ear for great talent, great songs. And not only would he let the artist give them room to breathe in their own right, but I think he would also help steer the ship in something, you know, in a, in a direction that made sense. If you don't mind telling what you know, what happened to the rest of the members of Adam again? All of them are still involved in music, save for Paul Valadez. Paul Valadez sadly passed some years back as well. He had some health problems. I know he dealt with diabetes and not sure what else, but really grateful for the time I got to spend with him as well, especially in Nashville when the band was rehearsing for the big Genie Gene uh, tribute show for Cornerstone 2000. Everybody in the band called him Polly, and he just, you know, really great sense of humor. Much like Gene, I think that for everybody's human struggles, I think humor kept a lot of people going. Humor and music. Michelle, Ricky Michelle, Michelle Palmer, um, she uh, still plays, both her and her husband Dave, uh, play in, I think it's a covers an original band uh down in uh, san diego area so they're still making music she did put out a solo record a few years back um, it was crowdfunded Portland now. He no longer lives in Cottage Grove. He's been up in Portland for some years. He's working at a great 
bookstore up there, uh, Powell's bookstore in Portland. It's kind of world famous and uh, pursuing something he loves. And he still plays music uh, on the side here and there, does some recordings, cut the occasional collaboration. He might show up with a guitar part on somebody's record here or there. Um, John Knox is still active in pursuing music down in Southern California, as far as I know. So last question, I think everybody that we either admire or we love or get to know, they pour a little bit of themselves into us and you find yourself like using a phrase that they may have used or you find yourself acting in a certain way or reacting in a certain way that they did. So Gene Eugene, what did he pour into you, do you feel? Here's the thing. I come from really uh, meager background. I always related to a lot of the songs about, you know, not having a lot of money, maybe growing up, Mm -hmm. you know, not that I lived in the inner city. I didn't, but I could relate to some of his background in the songs and the lyrics. And I have always felt like Gene is, like I said earlier, kind of an underdog. And I sort of am always rooting for the underdog. I would say Gene taught me to do a lot with a little right you know you you do the best you can do you create something beautiful something artful uh with the talents and skill set god gave you and a passionate heart and a little bit of vision and i don't think it's so much the budget or the tools at hand it's what is your vision and what's your commitment and what's your passion and what moves you and i think gene you know he left an indelible mark that it's about chasing after a story that means something that might move someone to a deeper understanding of themselves, of others, you know. Will the eagle fly if the sky's untrue? Do the faithful sign because they are so few. Remember when I we were at the green room in 97 and um, Greg and Gene had had, uh, you know, maybe two songs just sort of scratched out, just really rough scratch vocals. So I think it was the second day of shooting uh, at the green room in 1997. And um, we were waiting for Gene and Greg to arrive. They had gone and picked up a, a van. Gene, Gene never bought like a new car. I don't know if he ever owned a new car. It was always just sort of an old beater car of some sort. And um, he was picking up this, I want to say it was like a Ford Econoline van, an old 60s model. But it was just this very good looking white van. And he came driving up and him and Greg hopped out and you know, we spent a few minutes shooting a few things. And then he says, hey, he's like, hey, Todd, you want to you want to jump in the van and drive around and we'll shoot some of that Super 8 film? I love that black and white. You know, let's do that. And I'm like, and I'm I'm like, no money. We have no budget. We're doing all this out of pocket. So nobody was paying us for this at this point in time. I'm saying to myself in my head, and, and I literally start whining to him i'm like gene this this super eight film it's not cheap you know and there's they're only three minute rolls and we got to get it developed still 
I said, maybe we save the Super 8 film till you guys, you know, get more in the studio. And he said, no, 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 just jump in. It'll be fun. Come on, we'll we'll shoot some cool artsy stuff of me driving around the neighborhood. And, <laughs> and so I re- very reluctantly hop in the van with them, and I'm riding shotgun, and it's just the two of us. There's no audio, no sound on this, right? And so he starts sort of talking to the camera, because remember, Gene was a child actor. He knew how to turn on the charm when he when the time was right. So he starts telling me some stuff about his neighborhood, and I have to say, hey, Gene, Gene, there's... There's no audio on this. I don't have sound, unfortunately. You know, it's just just black and white Super 8 film. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, no problem. And he goes, well, what do you want me to do? And so, well, we had about three minutes because it was probably one role I shot in that time frame. I said, Gene, let me direct you just a little bit. All I want you to do is I'm going to shoot out the window. I'm going to shoot some shots of, like, your black Converse shoes on the gas pedal. I'll shoot some of you driving. But I want you to just like, as I'm shooting in slow motion, Super 8 film, I want you to just glance over at the camera and then glance forward again. Just give me two slight glances. So he gives them to me just, just perfectly. And honestly, in that moment, I just knew I had the shot like of a lifetime for me personally. And it was like, who can foretell the future, right? You know, you never know when the time you're going to spend with somebody is going to be your last. And thankfully that wasn't the last, that was just the beginning of a few really great moments. But in that little drive around the neighborhood, you know, he just let his guard down and he was just being a dude and share, Oh, I love to eat, you know, tacos over at that taco stand. They make the best. And he's just kind of describing things as we're going. It was just a nice little moment of, uh, of clarity for me, you know? And I was like, this is what I want to do. You know, I want to do this for the rest of my days if possible. You're only here in place, the wind is gonna roll The hungry and the brave keep breathing Mr. Zeller's got some more stories to share on some other musicians he's worked with, and so has agreed to return Back by the Woodpile in a few episodes. In the meantime, you might give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episode 146 a listen, where that previously mentioned discussion with True Tunes' John J. Thompson is regarding the hip-hop side of BAI. Then there's 253, where the 77's Mike Rowe and Alternative Records' Randy Layton discuss fellow Island Records label mate Robert Vaughn in the Shadows and the reissue of his iconic Love and War record. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. Yeah, Lord, tell me what kind of man makes you.